Hey, it's Johanna Masca. It is 2024 and we are back at it for Press Advance. A busy year ahead, I am sure. But I don't know about you guys. I keep feeling like I'm waking up every morning to seriously bleak headlines and I have to take a step back, look outside, realize the sun is still shining, the birds are still chirping, and there are still reasons to be grateful. For those who are just tuning in, I want you to know this is a political podcast, but it is not a divisive podcast. I spent a long time working in politics, starting at the beginning of the Iowa campaign for Barack Obama, eight years in his orbit, but I am very sure that politicians do not have all of our answers. I also want to admit some things. I have some bias. I will not buy in to this crap that America is on fire, that we're all divided, and that there's no hope. The reason that we have millions of people showing up at our border is because there is no place like the United States of America, where we all have rights, where we, the people, can exercise those rights. I am very well aware that it is imperfect. It has always been imperfect. But if we want to change it, we are the only people who can. It's with that lens that we're opening the season. I know we spent last season talking to Republicans running for president or in leadership positions. So for this season, I wanted to start by talking to a Democrat who decided he wanted to run for president against Joe Biden. Congressman Dean Phillips represents a district in Minnesota he flipped in 2018. But before that, he was a business executive. His dad had died in Vietnam before he ever met him, and his mother was a young widow. She married a man who would adopt Dean and make him the heir of a significant fortune. His grandma was the original Dear Abby. So he came into the business world with somewhat of a leg up and a lot of advice, but worked very hard to build more businesses, including a gelato business he would sell to Unilever. He is one of the wealthiest members of Congress, and as a congressman, he's well-regarded. He did some unusual things with his spare time, including asking his constituents to hire him so he could work in their businesses. He is a next generation leader. So we talk about the many voices who are out there that need oxygen, some of whom we will talk to on press advance. But we start on why on earth did he want to run for president, a job I saw up close and I have to say is unenviable. You know, it's actually a very simple answer, and it is because I've been following the polls, I've been listening to my constituents back in Minnesota, traveling the country, and it's pretty abundantly clear Joe Biden will lose to Donald Trump if he's at the top of the ticket. And not only that, I think Democrats are going to lose a lot of down-ballot races that are totally winnable, and it's an existential threat because, of course, I believe, like so many, that Donald Trump is a threat to democracy, a clear and present danger, and I think Democrats are sleepwalking into a totally preventable disaster. That's the why. But the what is it's time for change and the country is eager to turn the page. And I think so many democratic initiatives and principles and ideas have gone unfulfilled. And I'm an unusual candidate in that I've got a lot of private sector experience, a lot of nonprofit experience, and now some uh, three terms in the U.S. Congress. And I have found a way to package progressive notions and principles to make them understood by independents and moderate Republicans and actually get things done as the second most bipartisan member of Congress. And I think it's time for change. Costs and chaos are on the minds of just about every American. Uh, They're being unaddressed. And I have an agenda to try to do something pretty remarkable and usher in a new generation and actually return some joy and optimism to the United States political world, which is so devoid of it right now. And that's my mission. 
So I want to break down a couple of those things because I think we agree that the vast majority of the country wants to move on from Trump and Biden. I'm not sure that the primary voters, especially on the Republican side, who have other options, lots, are actually going to do that. (laughs) It's frustrating to me, too. But the question isn't, you know, whether Joe Biden is too old. It's what would you want to do as president? Why is it you want that job? Because, I mean, you've seen the job. I've seen the job up close. It's not an enviable position. Why do you want it? It's not enviable. And I and I understand that this isn't about uh, an aspiration. In fact, it was three months ago. If you had told me I'd be doing this, I would have said you're out of your minds. Uh, the same way that if you told me about six years ago I'd run for Congress, I would have said you're out of your mind. But I never contemplated Donald Trump being the GOP nominee and then winning the presidency in the United States. It's still hard to imagine that it happened. And by the way, back then, I'd built Belvedere Vodka, uh, then Talenti Gelato with my partners into great brands. I had a wonderful life in Minnesota. I was watching that election in 2016, of course. I was appalled. Uh, But it was really waking up the next morning to my youngest daughter in tears. Uh, She had overcome Hodgkin's lymphoma. She's a gay woman. I didn't know that at the time. But what she was afraid of really jarred me about being a young American woman afraid of her own country. And I promised my daughters that morning I would do something. And I did. And I flipped a district that had not elected a Democrat since 1958. And I beat a four-term incumbent, Republican, who had won by 14 points, and we won by 12. And my last election, I won by almost 20. So I know how to flip districts. I know how to appeal to independents and Republicans. I use invitation, not confrontation. And my style of leadership as an executive, unlike President Biden, who has spent his entire years in Washington, is quite different. And I think it's time for a significant change in leadership, a new approach to generating legislation that actually includes our opponents across the aisle to address the biggest issues of the day, because Congress has become a completely dysfunctional mess. Our faith in government is at an all-time low. And the fact of the matter is the overwhelming majority of the country simply wants to move on. And as a Democrat, as an American, as someone who lost his father in Vietnam, who gave his life to this country, I wasn't going to sit down and shush up and get in line, which is what the Democratic Party wants me to do, at a time where I can see the writing on the wall, the same writing we should have seen in 2016, and now it's even worse. And the fact that our party is pursuing a coronation instead of a competition is one of the most destructive and dangerous strategies I have ever, ever seen for an institution or organization that actually wants to win. Let's talk about that, though. There is precedent of an incumbent having an incumbent advantage. I think all of us the last time around, you know, younger generation, we believed that President Biden would be a good transitional president, transition away from President Trump and back into some more normalcy. We, of course, had Ebola that came to the United States, managed to protect Americans during the Obama administration. A pandemic was ignored by President Trump as he tried to negotiate for crop sales, supposedly from China, from a trade deal that never actually benefited the farmers that he said he was going to benefit. You know, Donald Trump proved to us that his ability to govern was not the best. Advisors are saying that he shouldn't be president. There are people who are supporting him publicly who are very worried who he would put as attorney general. 
we agree that he, you know, has shown us that he's dangerous. But what is Joe Biden not doing that you want to see him do specifically? Yeah, you know, that's the root of this question. First of all, let me make it really clear. I admire Joe Biden. He's been to my home in Minnesota. I've hosted a fundraiser for him, flown on Air Force One with him twice. I've supported his legislation. I voted for him. I campaigned for him, done everything I can. And this is not animus towards Joe Biden. This is just the simple recognition that we need to win. And there is nothing that Joe Biden can do to change the trajectory of this race. People's image of him is fully baked. Americans believe he's too old and not up to the task. And my job is not to opine about whether he is or isn't. I think he is. But Americans have made up their minds. And if they didn't, a man under federal indictment whose New York charity was shut down for fraud, whose businesses have gone bankrupt, who is the most corrupt and dangerous man who lacks extraordinary character and values, is beating Joe Biden. That's what matters. You know, I come from the marketing world. I built a lot of brands. I know uh, when consumers have said that they've had enough, and I don't think there's anything that can be done. And I would not have entered this race if I'd thought there was, because the perspectives I had shared, I don't think were really appreciated. And the fact of the matter is, I don't think there's anything anybody can do. The only thing we can do is do what Democrats should always do, which is to have a competition amongst candidates who can make their case to the country, to the voters, who hopefully will choose the person who's best positioned to win. All the evidence indicates that Joe Biden cannot, and that's what this is about. So it's not about yelling louder about the infrastructure bill or the CHIPS Act or a bunch of beautiful ads. If anything, I would ask the president to get out and campaign, to do press conferences, to meet press and answer questions, to do some debates and show the country. The country doesn't believe he's up to it. So why not get out and show them that you are? And if he doesn't do it, I'm just afraid that that's the problem, that he is not showing the country that he can do it again. And I'm trying to get him to demonstrate he can. And I'm also trying to make the case to Democrats that there's a delusion right now that he is likely to win. He's not. And we have some wonderful candidates who can, which I encourage to do so over the last number of months. And they didn't want to because I think they're afraid of the Democratic Party. We do have an incredible bench. And one of the things that I think Republicans do better than Democrats is they preview that bench, whether they're, you know, putting their young leaders front and center and giving them oxygen in hearings and the like. They do that. There's not anything other than messaging that you've so far pointed to that Joe Biden isn't doing right, right? No, there's a whole lot. In fact, what I'm trying to do is first make the case that this is about winning. And I think the most important policy issue for Democrats this year should be singular, winning. Because if we don't win the White House, I think we're going to lose both the Senate and I think we're going to lose a lot of down-ballot races. And I'm telling you the support that Democrats are hemorrhaging right now around the country is graphic and very real. That's the first policy difference. Second is my leadership. You know, I'm an executive. Democrats have still yet to realize the great promise that we continue to make generation after generation, particular to the black community, to other oppressed communities, about raising the foundation for Americans, you know, health care for all, housing for everybody, education, fuel and food. You know, costs in America are out of control for most families, 60 percent living paycheck to paycheck, 40 percent can't afford a four hundred dollar emergency. So when the president of the United States gets on TV and says the economy is the best it's ever been, job growth is through the roof, you've got over half of the country literally right now saying, not for me. 
That's wonderful about the infrastructure bill. That's great about bringing semiconductor manufacturing back. By the way, I voted for all those things. But the truth is people are really struggling. And I'm afraid the president and the administration is not hearing them. In fact, doing just the opposite, telling people who are hurting that everything's okay. That's one difference. Let me talk about another of the others. First of all, cannabis legalization, big difference. Southern border, an unmitigated disaster. I cannot understand why Democrats are on the wrong side of this issue. It is so clear that we can be a humane country, be in a, a country that attracts and welcomes and embraces immigrants, but has significant and much improved border security. So that's Congress, right? We need action from Congress, though, on immigration. And Tell me, the majority of Democrats are for a comprehensive reform that would include border security, right? First of all, no. The executive of the United States of America can and must, must secure our borders. And there are resources. I don't think we have people in the right place. I don't think we have the right strategy. And every Republican wants to address it and a number of Democrats. You're right. It hasn't been done. But it's not just Congress. This is an executive failure, if you ask me. And it continues. And by the way, it's not just this administration. It's Democrats and Republicans for literally decades that have ignored a really significant issue. And by the way, the truth is this. With climate change and war and famine and lack of uh, clean water, it's going to get worse. And, and we have a northern border as well that we have to attend to. And I'm just, you know, when we spend a trillion dollars a year on our Pentagon budget protecting America from foreign threats, and we have a border over which thousands of people a day are coming through, many of which are not even encountered by our agents and processed. I mean, I can't think of a more graphic failure in the foremost responsibility of an American president than to prevent that. You're saying executives in charge of these different agencies instead of some of the politicians who have been put in charge of some of these agencies are some of the changes that you'd like to see. Yes. In fact, you just hit the nail on the head. I'm so glad you said that. Politicians tend to put politicians in charge. And I'm a newly elected politician, comes from the private sector, who will do it very differently. Identify the very best and brightest managers. doesn't matter your politics. It matters about your principles. And run the United States federal government like the enterprise it should be and hold people accountable and do everything humanly possible to make it work because people have lost faith. And I see why. I've been to the southern border twice. It is an unmitigated, embarrassing disaster. That's just one example. And then you got war overseas. The chaos in Ukraine, and of course, in the Middle East, our cities, you know, homelessness. You know, we've got so much to do, diseases of despair. And it's not just someone can wave a magic wand. I know I can't. But I think we need new energy and new perspectives. And most of all, a president who legitimately walks, talks, and breathes working together to solve problems, not just to litigate politics. And people are really frustrated. And I'm quite a different person. I'm not a politician by trade or by profession. You know, it's so interesting you say that because from Galesburg, Illinois, my family are conservatives. And I went to Washington with a president who said he wanted to reach across the aisle, do things differently. And then Washington reacted by resisting him. Then, you know, when President Trump was elected, I said I would never root against a president of the United States. I would support him until there were areas that I disagreed with him on. And yet there was a resistance to anything that he did. How do you think that that changes with an executive? Because I, I haven't seen it. And I there was a pretty good executive with Barack Obama who tried to change it. And it didn't happen. 
I don't believe that we've had a president recently that invested in the way one needs to develop those relationships and that work ethic. And I'll be forthright. You know, the Trump White House worked very closely with me in my office on two really important initiatives, one of which nobody knows about. It was called Deferred Enforced Departure, which was an issue very important to the Liberian community in Minnesota that I represented and frankly became my family. They were at risk of being deported after 20, 30 years back to a country many weren't even, you know, had never been to before. And on a Friday evening, the Trump administration signed off on an extension of that program that saved hundreds of families, I believe. And it was, there was no fanfare. It wasn't supposed to be too public. But I'll tell you, they worked with me really closely uh, in a very thoughtful manner. Then I worked with Chip Roy of all, you know, I'm number two, most bipartisan member of Congress. Chip Roy is probably 430. But we issued the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act that comprehensively reformed the Paycheck Protection Program laws and allowed thousands of businesses to succeed and pay their employees. And that was another Trump initiative. And when I say, no, it was our initiative, but the Trump White House worked really closely with us to get that done. I've not seen any of that reach out by the Biden White House. I have to be honest with you. And it takes something different than just talking about it. You know, when you work with new people, you got to sit down, you got to break bread, you got to share some life stories, get to know each other, build a little of trust. And then when you're going to point out a problem, let's say it's border security, let's say it's the war in Ukraine, let's say it's housing or healthcare. What is the objective? You know, what is the objective? And then when you have the same people at the takeoff, they're much more likely to be there at the landing. But the way that politics works is each team issues their tactics, which by definition create, you know, conflict on day one. And that's the difference. You know, President Obama, I loved. He was never an executive. Joe Biden, I loved. He's never been an executive. And Donald Trump is a disaster who's a developer. He's not an executive. So my point is that. So here's what I'll say about Obama, because I worked with him. He was an amazing leader and could absolutely have been an executive, like clearly was an organizer, clearly was a professor. What I think our mistake was, was actually it's a complicated government structure and you need people with experience. But we brought in a lot of Clinton people who were big elbows. And and it was not the respect, empower, include that was our original campaign motto. And so I think we, you're right, we failed on some of those respect, empower, include initiatives, especially with Congress. I mean, I was involved in opening up to the press a Republican caucus meeting that we were going to in the, our ideal was, oh, we were going to, you know, shame them into working with us on healthcare. Of course, that didn't work. I'm interested in your ideas, but We're talking about, you know, a president who got handed a terrible situation getting us out of a pandemic that, you know, I really wish there would have been a leader who would have paid attention to it at the get go, had investigated in China at the get go, whatever. There are so many problems in the world that existed then. Right. Like when we were dealing with China, they were incredibly aggressive. I remember they beat up our press at the U.N. when there was a massive conflict. They've been building for a long time, believing that America's power is temporary and that they will replace us. What is it that you would do as president to hold China in check economically to the world so that our U.S. jobs are preserved and that our U.S. consumers continue to have a reasonable price for their products. 
How do you balance that? Well, first of all, in some ways, that ship has sailed. It sailed over generations of policies in which we were totally taken advantage of. And I think that's pretty clear right now. How do we reset this relationship? Of course, it's not easy. But this notion that we have to keep, quote unquote, the Chinese in check, that's exactly, I think, the kind of philosophy that is very dangerous because nobody wants to be kept in check. Nobody wants to be controlled or mitigated or managed. You know, what I think what we have to do is it's going back to the old fashioned analog face to face human relationships that we have been losing with the Chinese for many, many years. Uh, in fact, I had dinner at the Chinese ambassador's residence just a couple months ago, a dinner I initiated because I thought it was important that members of Congress meet the Chinese ambassador and form human relationships. I invited 26 people and only three, including myself, two others agreed to go, which is to me the symptom of the great disease. We're not even willing to engage. And if we're not willing to engage and build a relationship, build a little bit of trust, how in the world can we work with anybody? And I think people should recognize, you know, we have the military facilities in about 80 countries. I think we have 700 total. You know, we have ships and submarines and missiles and uh, space forces. We are perceived by many countries as a clear and present danger. And this is something hard for Americans to understand because if we had Chinese submarines off the coast of Manhattan and Los Angeles, if there was a missile base in Cuba and there were launch pads in Toronto and Vancouver pointed to the United States, you don't think we might be a little bit concerned? That's what the Chinese look at us as, you know, that we are surrounding them, uh, that we are aggressors. And I think we should have a reset. And there are lots of ways we can cooperate. Uh, I think we should start with things like social media. Let's have a reciprocity arrangement. If you will not allow U.S. apps in China, then we will not allow Chinese apps in the United States. If you do not trade fairly, we will not trade fairly. You know, if you do not work according to international law, then we will not participate either. They are in a really deep problem right now, the Chinese. President Xi knows it. They've got about 75 million empty homes into which the Chinese population has invested, and they have a massive financial bubble that is about to explode. They have a population decrease forthcoming. They've got a lot of domestic issues. This is actually the perfect time to reset the relationship. I would propose to them that we work together uh, to create a Palestinian state side by side with Israel and actually work together to make it happen and ensure that both countries are protected and have opportunities. You're saying work with China. I want to take a step back because I know you met with the ambassador, but the Chinese Communist Party runs China. So any meeting that we did, it was always surprising to me that you can't just negotiate with the Chinese. It's party control. So they end up taking everything back to the party and they may say temporarily, let's please Johanna because she's made such a big scene about getting a question from the press to President Xi, but like it's not going to matter long term because we're still building up this way. Like how do you actually negotiate with China. Okay. It's funny how the most important solutions are usually the easiest. It wasn't long ago where international leaders really did spend time together, They, whether it was Camp David or uh, they took the occasion uh, to meet, get to know each other, build some trust. And I don't know why those days have passed right now. Uh, I don't see President Biden being that kind of leader at this stage of his life uh, that really takes initiative, really takes control, does that kind of you know relationship building himself. I think that's really important. And I think the first job of the next American president, and I do intend it to be me, is to build those relationships, both with our friends and with our foes. Because if we don't at least give that a chance, 
then we have, I think, made the biggest mistake uh, of our lifetimes, and I think it's existential. It doesn't mean that it's always going to work out. It's one thing that Trump did that I actually think was smart to go visit Kim Jong-un in North Korea. You know, it sounded so strange. It was counterintuitive. But at the end of the day, when you are facing a nuclear-armed country and you have no relationship whatsoever between its two leaders, you know, it, I would argue it makes the likelihood uh, of a conflict much higher. And I think we should remember that. I think we should be peacemakers. The Russians are very different. Vladimir Putin is a disaster. And I think we should already be focused on a post-Putin Russia, a failed nation with nuclear weapons, with a brain drain. We should anticipate these issues. We should be anticipating. Which is scary. <laughs> which is scary. And, we sh- and also, we should be anticipating artificial intelligence, how it's going to disrupt our economy, but also reduce costs. And it already is. Now, just one last thing, though, before we move on, because with this notion of even North Korea, he met with them, but he did nothing. He got nothing. Like, diplomats work on these relationships for years. We we did, actually. President Obama hosted President Xi at Sunnylands and tried to create a relationship. It did not have long-term beneficial consequences. Instead, you know, Joe Biden gets in office and we've got a spy balloon floating across the United States of America. So are we naive? No, but what I'm saying is the beginning is a relationship, period. You can't get anything done if you don't have a relationship, you don't have trust. And look at the Chinese see things very differently than we do. But I would argue it's time for us to propose a grand cooperation. It could be climate change. It could be investments in fission. It could be any new generation technologies. It could be AI collaboration. It could be something, whatever it might be, that we can work on and demonstrate our capacity to be partners. We will always be competitors. I don't think it's in our country's best interest to make China an adversary. I think it is in our best interest to at least take steps to neutralize this nonsense and find ways to cooperate because President Xi won't be around forever. And by the way, part of my whole message is it's time for a new generation of leaders all around the world. If you look at some of the younger leaders in the world, there is a magnificent change forthcoming with a very different worldview, I think with much more focus on peacemaking and prosperity building. And I think there's a generation, including President Biden, President Xi, President Putin, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and many others, whose time has come and gone. And I'm going to make the case to the country that it really is time for change. And I think it starts with that worldview that is so different. And you look at, perhaps it's because I lost a father in war. Uh, I really recognize the toll that these conflicts take. I think we underinvest in peace and we overinvest, frankly, in our military right now. So you would invest more heavily in the State Department and in diplomats and less heavily in our military? Well, first, I would make sure the Pentagon passes uh, an audit, which it hasn't. I do think we overspend, frankly. I don't think we spend well. I think our strategy is still a 20th century strategy in a very different world. And when I just say it's not just more money for the State Department, it's actually a new strategy. How are we going to use our resources, both diplomatic and kinetic and aid, that triangulation, if you will, to affect our uh, national interests? Why are we not investing very intentionally in countries from which migrants are coming to the border? If we did so, we would prevent a lot of that. So supposedly we are, right? That's what Kamala Harris was supposed to be working with the private industry. And they were, you know, MasterCard and all these different companies were investing and they were supposed to bring about jobs. But when you have a corrupt government, there's really only so much you can do, right? No, totally, totally. But then we have to create strategies to affect. We are 
are the United States of America. And we are looking like fools to a lot of countries around the world constantly. They test us, they poke us, they prod us. We don't respond appropriately. Why do you think we look like fools? Because I would argue, you know, when I when I traveled the world with President Obama, countries looked up to us. That was then. Totally. And when we were in Jordan, you know, the the women I was working with, I had just had my son and, you know, they were asking me, oh, my God, you're still doing all of this. And they wanted our lives like there was a reason that the world is showing up on our borders. They want what we have. And I think too often we buy into this narrative that, you know, the world is looking at us like we are terrible. I think they want a strong America to be a power broker, especially when you have a genocide ongoing in China and the likes. And it's a delicate balance that President Biden has to do right now because you have this kind of progressive side, which has some thoughts on the world and you have, you know, a more conservative, traditional. And right now, because the Republicans have lost their minds, unfortunately, and they have Donald Trump at the helm, Democrats have to balance both, which doesn't seem to be fair. By the way, you're referring to the last time that I remember in my life where I was really, really excited about the time in which, in which we were living. I loved having President Obama as our president. I, there was a joy, there was an optimism, there was a future-looking America that felt good, especially in the beginning. You remember that. I want us to get back to that. What I'm trying to say is that our brand has eroded considerably since the Obama presidency, eroded considerably, primarily because of Donald Trump. There's no question. And it continues to. You're saying Joe Biden hasn't reset and people don't feel the same about him. First of all, I will give President Biden credit for a lot of things, including rebuilding the relationship between our core allies, which had been diminished considerably, of course. But the world is not looking at us the same way. The world looks at us as a quite a diminished country. The way that we exited Afghanistan, of course, our absence in the Middle East, and which creates a vacuum, frankly, for the Chinese and Russians and others, and the way that the Saudis have played us, the Chinese have played us, frankly, the Russians have played us, and the Iranians. They're all playing politics. And <laughs> yeah, it's awful. Yeah. And I think about all these countries that have poked us, and our response has not been very effective at reducing those pokes of anything. They're expanding and increasing. And I think it's time to recalibrate and uh, reflect and, frankly, re-strategize our entire foreign policy, again, as it relates to our military, our diplomacy, and our foreign aid. And that means great thinkers on both sides of the aisle, identifying our problems and our priorities, and coming up with better solutions. I really think it's time for a shakeup. And not in a destructive way like Trump proposes, but in a constructive way, in a next generation way that is really uplifting and, by the way, more inclusive. Because I think the greatest threat facing the country right now is probably what you would agree to, which is our internal divisions. We are at high risk if we don't start including different voices in our White House. And by the way, that's why I will have a bipartisan cabinet. I will have the youth cabinet. I will have bipartisan common ground dinners in the White House where we bring Democrats and Republicans from around the country, everyday Americans, to get to know their president at a casual setting every month. We got to start making repairs to our relationships. And that starts at home. And then I think we have to do the same thing concurrently overseas. It's not about which country is bigger, stronger, better. It's about trying to protect humanity and we're not doing a good job at home, and we're not doing a good job around the world. Before you made the decision, I must run for president, I saw that you talked to Steve Schmidt. 
Steve Schmidt, of course, ran <laughs> against us. He decided Sarah Palin was a good voice to give oxygen to. What is your relationship with Steve Schmidt now? I will tell you that I appeared on his podcast, I think in late September, early October. And in many ways, it was he that inspired me to maybe take this leap. You know, to his credit, he has migrated far from the days of Sarah Palin, which I think he would tell you was not exactly his decision, but that's for some other people to litigate. Nonetheless, you know, he left the Republican Party, became an independent, then he became a Democrat, and I think is partially responsible for Joe Biden being president. Now, the Lincoln Project, I think, made a big difference. I know the president called him afterwards. You do think that they made a difference? I think it was the work of a lot of women who made the difference, if I'm being, you know. <laughs> First of all, lots. OK, good point. Yes. Uh, by the way, and same on my campaign, I give huge credit to the women that joined my campaign and energized and resisted. Let me tell you what I'm getting at is this. It took a bunch of, I think, former Republicans to help push him over the edge is the truth. He only won by 40 some thousand votes in a few states. And yes, it took a big village of a lot of people. All I'm saying is he deserves credit for helping do that versus sitting around the sidelines and doing nothing. And I really do think he deserves that. And he did. He gave me some counsel in the beginning. He was never a paid person. He never managed my campaign, but he did. He helped me get this thing started. He left right after we kicked off and started his own super PAC that ostensibly, I understand, was supporting this campaign in some way, shape, or form. And I think has done something else now. I'm not in touch with him right now. But I do thank him for inspiring me and encouraging me because what he told me is that in 2020, Joe Biden was the only person that could beat Donald Trump. And he said in 2024, I really think it's you, Dean, that is one of the only people that can beat Donald Trump. And I think you got to do this. And it's not an animus towards the president, but it's just based on the data. And that's how this all started. And I wish him well, because I think I think he deserves more credit than he gets sometimes. And I understand why all of us in politics are at the mercy of how we're presented by others. What were uh, the conversations like with your Democratic colleagues when you decided you wanted to run for president? This is one reason I'm doing this. I say I'm saying the quiet part out loud. My conversations in private were very different than the ones we're seeing now issued publicly. My Democratic colleagues know that Joe Biden is probably not going to be able to win this election. They know the messaging from the White House is not even close to sufficient. See, I'm not so sure. I go back and forth on this, Dean, because I, like I said in this last election cycle on News Nation on election night, I don't think that America wants Biden versus Trump. But there's only a certain amount of people who will vote for Trump. How did you feel in 2016? Did you really think he could win in 2016? I did. I thought Trump would win. Oh, but not now? Not now? I don't because of January 6th. I think it's changed. And I think there will be a lot of people who just stay home. And the question is, how many Democrats do you get to actually turn up at the polls? I go back and forth on this. Like, I agree with you. You have like some gut of, okay, you know, like the economy is not good. There are people in Galesburg, Illinois, who put everything back in their cart because they can only afford so much. And they're not feeling good about where they are or their job or the union benefits that were negotiated for a very small percentage of our population because a very small percentage of our population is actually union. So yeah, I hear you. But I think if you actually look at the math, there is a certain segment that will show up for Donald Trump. But is that enough to beat 
Democrats who are reliable and the people who are sure to vote against Trump, because every organization, including No Labels, has said they don't want Trump back in office. First of all, what you just shared is it's totally reasonable because it's um, aspirational and fingers crossed and, you know, there has to be a way. And that's kind of what I consider, right? I, I'm not saying this is true of you. I'm just saying that's, to me, the delusion that we're facing right now. In 2016, Hillary Clinton was ahead in most polls. It was either tied or she was ahead. I have not seen a poll lately that shows Joe Biden coming even close, really, to beating Donald Trump. You know, national polls, a couple of them, but the battleground states and his approval numbers, as you well know, and I just don't see any evidence. And furthermore, Donald Trump, his voters show up. His voters show up. And I'll tell you, the most damning numbers I'm seeing right now are these. Young people, people under 30 years old in America are favoring Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Latinos favoring Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Black men in America uh, hemorrhaging support from Biden moving to Trump. 83% of Democrats under 30 want a different nominee. 50% of Democrats writ large want a different nominee. I mean, we are in grave, grave trouble, period. Even though the inflation they're facing is largely due to the Trump administration, they poured money out. But that's not the issue. See, you're missing the issue. What I do for a living right now is listen to people. And people have changed their minds considerably about the future. Joe Biden did a nice job. He really did. And I want to give him credit for that. But the campaign is predicated around what he did. Campaigns are about the future. And the issues that people care about right now, costs and chaos, Joe Biden loses on both. He just does. And his age is a massive problem for most Americans. And young people, young people are completely apathetic. Moderates, Republicans, not going to vote for him again. Independents have already moved on. And we have apathy that is the most dangerous, as you know, as a Democrat, the worst disease we could fight. And you know, the other thing is Donald Trump usually does better than the polls. I'm not saying the Republicans do. Donald Trump usually does better because most people don't even acknowledge they support him. And he's inspiring millions of people to vote who never have before. So I'll leave it at this. I think it was Reagan that said, you know, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Can anybody make the case for a man who only won by about 40,000 votes in a few states? Is Joe Biden better off now than he was four years ago? Nothing. There's not a single data point, not a single data point. So here's my contention. It shouldn't be about Joe Biden. We should have other Democrats on a stage doing debates on primetime TV, generating energy, getting people to pay attention and do what Democrats do. The Democratic National Committee is committing the most egregious affront to the Democratic principles I've ever seen in my life. And it's just the truth. We should be having a competition. It's not about me. It's not about Joe Biden. It should be about Gretchen Whitmer and Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris and Dean Phillips and Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and anybody else. Americans are pretty damn tired of politicians. They're really tired of politicians. So if Democrats think that the, the only path is you got to be there for 30 years and climb the ladder, we are completely missing the boat. The country is hungry for someone different from a different perspective, a different background, and we are not offering the market what the market is saying they want. So I'll leave it on that one more thing. If we were nicely positioned, even if nicely positioned, how is it that we are losing to a man like Donald Trump? I, how do we not look in the mirror right now and just say, my goodness, everybody, let's just take a breath for a moment. We are losing. We, we Joe Biden is losing. Look, he's 81 years old. Maybe something magical happens. 
in the next year when he's 82 years old and he's energetic and he's in front of people answering questions and he's a great debater and people see confidence and the future. I'm going to shush up now because I think people have got to start recognizing. No. Well, and look, the first time people are going to hear your name largely is in New Hampshire. Joe Biden's not on the ballot because they were trying to change the schedule. And so they didn't put Joe Biden on the ballot. And you have spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. And I've got to say of your competitors, uh, you're the only one probably who has any experience governing. Senk ran Young Turks. And I guess you've got Marianne Williamson, who has written some books. But you have actually been a leader in the Democratic Party. You've had positions of authority. You are close with leadership. You will likely do very well in New Hampshire. And people will go, who is he? What do you want people <laughs> and, to know? And by the way, that's fine. <laughs> that's, that's what I want them asking. Dean who? You know, the best thing about being the guy that nobody knows yet is two thirds of the country doesn't hate me. I mean, a bunch of Democrats in Washington aren't happy with me. But, you know, on that, let me tell you, on that count, on New Hampshire, I think it's really important for people to know the Democratic Party and Joe Biden, as you know, replaced New Hampshire with South Carolina. Well, New Hampshire folks are not very pleased. Joe Biden lost there pretty handily in the last election. They're not big fans. So he switches the order of the primary. So for a guy who's not on the ballot, I, let me tell you, the Biden campaign is working awfully hard for him on the, the write-in Biden campaign. There's a super PAC set up. So they're going to try to say, oh, he wasn't on the ballot. Let me tell you the truth because I'm going to keep telling it. They are working their tails off to avoid what is going to be a massive embarrassment for an incumbent president of the United States who is likely to get in the 50s if he's successful. And I don't even know if he's going to get that. And I mean it. They are working their tails off. And do not let them lie to you about this, too, that it doesn't matter. And don't let them send a letter to New Hampshire saying that this is a meaningless primary. And you know what? Has the Democratic Party ever received a letter from the Department of Justice of one of the, our United States that is a cease and desist for the unlawful suppression of voters as the Democratic National Committee received this week from New Hampshire? I don't think so. And nobody is talking about it. Nobody is talking about what the Democratic Party is really doing here. It is atrocious. So I got into this fight with Mick Mulvaney and I was actually on your side. Like, I think we should keep the order. And he was essentially making the point that the parties do have power over what state can go first. And it's the party, not, you know, the people because they have so much power, Republicans and Democrats alike, like those parties are in charge. So I hear what you know, Mick's point was to me was he was telling me I was wrong to be concerned about, you know, Biden wants to have the order that he wants to have. I, I mean, he may say it was slightly different than that. But here's the bigger issue with this is the following. You know, yes, the the two parties, they're private enterprises. And frankly, that's the big part of the problem. We really need competition because this duopoly, I really believe, is destructive. But here's the problem. Joe Biden and the Democratic National Committee, they know that there is a Republican, Governor Sununu, is in Concord, New Hampshire, in their state house. They knew, they knew that New Hampshire never would be able to change their order in the primary because New Hampshire has a law on their books that requires that they be the first in the nation primary. So the Democratic Party knowingly disenfranchised Democratic voters in New Hampshire in the spirit of helping Joe Biden look better in his first, what they would hope would have been his first primary state. It's wrong. I'm just going to call it out like I see it. It is wrong. 
And the Republicans did that in Nevada. They basically pulled it out and made themselves a caucus. I mean, I'm saying that that's some of the stuff that Andrew Yang, and I know you've talked to him, is trying to change some of the party process and doing ranked choice voting and things that can make it more fair for people who um, are independents to win. Well, you know, can I give you one good idea? We have one election day, you know, in November, right? Why don't we just have one primary day? Why is this so darn difficult? Because of money, though. That would put even more money in the system because it's so expensive to run a race. Like, you know, you're doing it right now. And as I understand, you're privately funding this campaign. So you're really out personally the money that you're doing. But like the only way we could win with Barack Obama was because Iowa is a cheap state to put all of the people on field organizing and get to know like boots on the ground where you have people going door to door, living room to living room, and then you could make the change and and people could see in their hearts. I'm with you on the, we got to change the process and open it up. But like, if we put it all on one day, it would be the whoever has the most money would win. Then we should do our general election day staggered like that. So every state, you could still have time to run to different states. And sp- I mean, it doesn't, I'm trying to point out a little bit in, in jest that there are different ways to do this. And I think what the way we're doing it right now is off. And by the way, I think caucuses are archaic and ridiculous. I think we should have primaries in which Democrats and Republicans vote, period. And we should be promoting it. God, I loved the caucus. I loved the Iowa caucus. It was bizarre and weird, but you had to show up. We got a lot of people there, though. We did. We brought people who had never caucused before. And so did I when I ran in Minnesota when we had caucuses. And let me tell you, 90% of the people I got out said, I will never do that again. So what happens is, so this is, the, but I'm glad you bring that up because this is the problem for the Democratic Party, for the Republican Party. The reason more people are independent in this country than Democrats or Republicans, they're so sick of this, is the people that do show up to those. And by the way, I wish more did. But the fact of the matter is the people choosing our candidates are not choosing candidates that the rest of the country is pleased by. And that's why I'm running. I mean, it is just, look, I am a big underdog in the Democratic primary, but I'll tell you, against Donald Trump, I will beat him. And I mean it. I will beat him. I know how to beat him. And I promise you that my numbers against him will. But that's the problem. We are not creating a party mechanism that elevates the people who can win. Person A would beat him over here, but you actually are fascinating to me because you've got schnapps money. You've got uh, Galesburg, Illinois likes their schnapps. You got Dear Abby lineage. Yeah, advice and coffee and vodka and ice cream. I know. Yeah, at least at least I know what <laughs> Americans want, right? <laughs> Yeah, 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 you've been selling those things for a while. No, honestly, Dean, I am thrilled that we got a chance to have this conversation. Look, I have so much respect for people who jump in with their convictions, and I'm grateful for you for this time. I think you were right on the head of we're not getting enough oxygen on what are the things that we can do in our country, like the discussion on China. Like, could China be involved in a Palestinian state? I just find that, "Ah," but we should talk about it more at length. And let's get young people out there so that they can see them, because most Americans don't know who Wes Moore is or Gretchen Whitmer or, you know, they'll learn who you are on New Hampshire election night. (laughs) 
<laughs> what a missed opportunity for the entire country to be introduced to Wes Moore and others, me and others right now with Joe Biden. And by the way, if Joe Biden is the man, great. Then show up and earn it because he has not earned it. If his numbers were 10, he's winning by 10, his approvals were in the 40s or 50s, then he may have earned it. But he's not doing it. He has not earned his reelection. And that's my case. And by the way, I should probably close with this. I want to defeat Donald Trump. I'm not going to rest until we do. I will support the candidate who is best positioned to do it. And if that's Joe Biden, I'll get behind him. If it's somebody else, I'll get behind them. I think it's going to be me. And I would expect them to get behind me when that is proven true this summer when the head-to-head polls come out. But I'm not here doing this as a third-party person. I'm not trying to tear down the House. I'm trying to wake people up to the reality that we still have time to prevent a total disaster in November. And I think one way or another, whichever party breaks their logjam will win. And furthermore, Nikki Haley is surging right now. And if she's at the top of the ticket, The last Wall Street Journal poll indicated that she beats Joe Biden by 17 points nationally. When have you seen a number like that recently? So Democrats better wake up and understand we're probably going to lose to Trump and we will certainly lose to Haley. And we better have a candidate who is better positioned to beat either of them. And that just simply is not Joe Biden. The numbers are clear. I think we need to keep talking throughout this because like you just said, I don't know how this will all shift out before the August convention, but either way, I believe in America. I know you believe in America and the American dream, and we've got to keep it alive for the next generations. Thank you. And keep the faith. Thanks for what you're doing. I love these spirited discussions and let's do it again. That was really fun. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Look, I know that people in different parties, we we don't all have the same beliefs and we don't all ascribe to every single thing that one party believes. And to press advance and to get beyond this toxic moment, we're going to have to start breaking it down. If you enjoyed that conversation, there will be more this year. We are going to try to keep it positive and refreshing and try to figure out where we can bring about change because this too shall pass. This moment of toxicity and I can't wait until it does. Find me on social media at Johanna Masca and let me know what you thought of the conversation, what kinds of conversations you want to hear about, what topics you're interested in. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a review. Let us know what you're thinking. I am very grateful for the continued support of Situation Room Studios that produces this podcast and an incredibly talented team led by Christine Barada. My greatest thanks to everyone for the research and preparation for this episode. Come back next week because we'll have a fantastic panel breaking down the Iowa results and looking at New Hampshire.